Okay, we left off at Matthew 14, 22. Once again, that's where I left off. I assume it's where you left off. 1422. Yeah. Yes. Frank, you're supposed to tell me to hit the start button. Face ID doesn't work with me on your phone. Oh. Okay. It says you're very handsome, but it didn't start. What was it? 0630. There we go. Stay away from that wheelbarrow, Otis. You know you don't know nothing about machinery. That's a, that's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that worked. It's pretty much like the clampets. Yep. Okay. Uh, Jesus is uh, still up north. Uh, we're about a year away from his demise. And things are turning. He's dealing with the people outside more than he is in uh, the synagogues. And he is becoming very confrontational with the Pharisees. You know, one of the things at the beginning of this verse that strikes me is that reading Matthew sometimes just leaves me out of breath because everything is right away and immediately yeah. and and it's like it's it's like he's writing it and then he thinks of oh and then he's like writing it down yeah, yeah. yeah this is important you know yeah and uh yes he, he it, it's one of my favorite books it it, it has a beautiful flow to it and it's like Roland said, if you've ever followed along in uh, the, the Chosen, it's pretty much Matthew's perspective. It, it brings life to this. It really does. But anyway, verse 22. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. So uh, the lake, of course, is the Sea of Galilee. Um, they call it a sea for the United States. It would be a nice sized lake. But uh, they had just crossed the lake, and now they were heading back across the lake because it says Jesus uh, made them go, basically. And I don't know how Jesus sent the crowds away, but he did. Uh, Jesus knows what he is sending them into. He stays away knowing that they will need to face this storm by themselves, at least for a little while. This is so they can see their faith or their lack thereof. Jesus knows exactly what's happening. Do you understand? I mean, he makes the people go away. He goes up on the mountain to be away. And he says, you guys get in a boat and row across. He knows for sure what's happening and what's coming. This is prep for when Jesus will no longer be with them and the storms will come and they will have to walk by faith on things that are tougher than walking on water. I mean, it's it's coming. And, G, and also that's one of the things that begins here, you know, within these chapters, is he is starting to prepare them for what will be theirs to do. He didn't just dump them out there. All these things he's doing is getting them ready for them changing the world. All those things that were in the parables about the little seed that grew into the, well, that's them, they're the little seed. 23, after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. This reminds me of Jesus staying behind when he heard that Lazarus was dying, allowing hard things to happen so that his will could be done in a miraculous way. To me, the two things are parallel. He knows exactly what he... He knows when it's time to do nothing. 
and let it play out because they need to experience the experience and he won't deprive them of the things they need. The crowd has been sent away. Jesus is by himself and the disciples are in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. What happens is between Jesus and his disciples. He's preparing them for the end of his time here. And like I said, it's about a year from now. This doesn't involve the crowds. They're not, this is something that is occurring between Jesus and those 12 guys. But the boat was already, 24, the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by waves, for the wind was contrary. That's like saying, you know, I mean, like the California wildfires were a little smoldering. I mean, it's an understatement of great proportion. The winds were contrary. These guys were really frightened. Uh, they were at the point of no return, just as far back as forward. Not that that mattered. They weren't going anywhere as the wind was taking them wherever it wanted to take them. There was nothing they could do. Uh, they could not outrow the wind. Now, there's a little thing here, just to give you an idea. It's called a stanion, which is about 600 feet in length. Uh, 606.75 uh, feet is a stanion, about 185 meters. John tells tells us that the disciples have gone 25 to 30 stania. With the greatest width of the lake is 61 stania. So it'll give you an idea, they're pretty good ways out there. And that is halfway. And if they're not at the... If you're up north, you're not at the... Uh, my understanding is you're not at the widest part of the lake. But up near Capernaum, it, it's still a, a good ways to go. They really thought they were going to die. 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he, Jesus, came to them, walking on the sea. In the Roman system, the fourth watch would cover the time between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the Jews had a different system. Sometimes you'll see it. It was three watches, but this is the fourth watch. So if it says fourth watch, it can't be the Jews because they only had three. He waited a while. He let them row. He let them fight. And when they had nothing left... He came out to them. He sent them by themselves, and when he really needed them, when they had nothing left but him, he came. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. I assume we have been afraid of ghosts forever. I don't know how or why. Uh, I've never seen one. I don't know anybody that's ever seen one, but we imagine they're there. Uh, I don't understand it, and these stories go way, way back. I, I think it's maybe something we want to believe. I, I don't, I don't know, but I don't know. There's nothing in Scripture that I know of that talks about a ghost. Um, I remember Samuel being called up, but he wasn't a ghost. It was Samuel from you know when the witch of Endor, when Endor called you know for Saul, but that wasn't a ghost. Um, Anyway, they feared their rescue. They, they feared their rescue. They thought the worst. Even after everything they saw Jesus do. They did not have faith they should have had. And we could see that God knows that because he questions them on it. They needed to see and know this for themselves. They needed to know where they were. And there are times in my life where I have seen what I am 
spiritually and where I am spiritually and uh, where God just showed me. And, you know, I realized this, I need to be a little further than I was. And there's always the times when God shows me me where I have to ask him to stop because I don't want to see anymore. Uh, it's, it's, it's sort of amazing after all these years, it, you know, it, God is still showing me what needs to come out and what needs to be worked on. Sanctification is a process. That's exactly how it works. I'm not sure why we assume ghosts can walk on water, even why or why a ghost would want to. Point is, we've been thinking about them for a long time. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, the guys in the boat, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. From the midst of a very trying circumstances, Jesus speaks to their fear, and the only thing they need to know is, It is I. Don't be afraid of what you see, because I'm here, it's me. Take courage, because it's me. Six times in the gospel, in this gospel, Jesus tells his own not to be afraid. Our natural in every in each of those instances, you could see why they would be. Our natural reaction is to be afraid. Fight or flight is woven into us. Fear, actually, in most circumstances, causes us to do things. Uh, either stop doing something dangerous or confront something dangerous. But in this case, there was nothing. Fear was to no advantage to them. It did nothing. Uh, this life is brutal, and we all know it. He came that we might have peace in the midst of this brutality, in the midst of the things we cannot change, in the midst of the things where fear means nothing. It does nothing for us. He came to give us peace in that. And he said he came to give it abundantly, more than we need. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, so there's still some doubt, command me to come to you on the water. Now, this is always strange to me because if it was us in the boat, I would say, Lord, if it is you, command Kevin to come out to you on the water. And I'll pray for him. Go ahead, Kev. It'll work. Um, yeah. I may be more buoyant, but he's easier for God to hold up. You know, that's how I view it. Uh, it's strange. I have doubt that it's you, so ask, tell me to come out. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Uh, it would be more like, I know it's you. Ask me, tell me I can come out to see you. He said, I'm not sure it's you. Tell me to come out. So, hmm. And of course, his lack of assurance shows up. Uh, scripture says to test every spirit. If it is you, is a test of that. Seems to be a legitimate question as we get a sense that their eyes could not completely verify that what, who they were looking at was indeed Jesus. Remember, it's a raging storm. Uh, it's not wise to try to walk on water because someone who you thought might be from God to told you to do so. You know, God told me to tell you to walk on that water. Well, okay, you go first, you know. This isn't, if this isn't Jesus, then the entire dynamic of the situation changes. They need to be sure. They need proof before they put their faith in what they see. Now, the proof of everything they have seen before weighs on them. God expects an accountability for everything he has shown them. Every blind person who sees, every lame person that was healed, every dead person raised, 
every miracle ever done is accountable for. And you get the feeling that at this point, Peter's really starting to believe this is Jesus. Uh, the familiar sounding voice and the calm of being Jesus would have helped identify him as Jesus and build their faith. If it is you, then command me to walk on the water. And as I said, that seems to be a bit of a strange statement. Peter calls him Lord. So he obviously has, uh, he is starting to believe that's who this is. He calls him Lord. It says, if you are God, do what I tell you. The fear from what Peter was experiencing was being overwhelmed by the wonder of what he was seeing. Hmm. Think this through. Man, just put yourself there and the fear and the, well, what's the name of the, what was the name of the book? The Agony and the Ecstasy. All in one time. Just that all-consuming fear that I'm dying and I'm dying very soon and I'm dying a horrible death and God is walking on the water to me and he's talking to me. This this whole cacophony of experience, uh, you know, had to be overwhelmed by the wonder of what he's seeing. If this was an evil spirit, wouldn't he tell Peter to come out of the boat and then have him drowned? Not sure if we want to know if this was really Jesus. If that was the case, Peter could have just asked Jesus, "If you're if you're Jesus." Come on the boat. Wouldn't that be a little easier than saying, if you're Jesus, have me walk on the water, uh, I would think. So I think he's pretty sure who he's talking to. Either way, it was a bold request. First John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many, many false prophets have gone out into the world. So... Uh, as soon as the church started, the church was infiltrated. And so part of, you know, first and second Peter, Jude, those books are written particularly to be able to test the spirits. And he, Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. There was never a point where Jesus was not fully aware of the limits of Peter's faith. Jesus wasn't testing to see, Jesus knew. Peter needed to step out and he needed to sink. This is how we learn to trust him, not our own abilities. Faith is progressive. We go so far, we stop, and then God pushes us further. But there's always the point where we stop. There's a point in your life right now where you will stop. You will go no further. There's a point in my life where I will stop and go no further. I will either not believe or not want to believe. But God will not just leave me like that. He will continue to orchestrate my life so that I will take the next step. That's how the kingdom works. Peter did walk on the water ahead to Jesus. But what he felt and saw around him overwhelmed his faith. If Peter was in arm's reach of Jesus before he began to sink, we assume he made it some distance. Uh, verse 30, but seeing the wind, and, and, you know, there's a sermon there, but seeing the wind. Um, you know, you, there's what God called you to do. There's the thing scripture tells you to do. There's the thing the Holy Spirit prods you to do. And you say, yeah, I should do that. 
and then the wind shows up, whatever the wind is. I mean, it could be any, any sort of a challenge from man, nature, your physical health, financial. Uh, he became frightened. And those words, he became frightened, are a direct challenge to faith. And when he became frightened, he saw the wind, he became frightened, and he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Paying heed to the wind instead of Jesus. It says seeing the wind. It means he's not looking at Jesus anymore. He's looking around at the wind. His faith has reached its limit. But as noted previously, faith is progressive. Each time we fail, we go further than we did last time. The water was not the most dangerous place. Jesus would call Peter to walk. If you know anything about how Peter died and where he went and what he did, the water was almost incidental. Yes, Peter's faith failed, but he alone had the faith to go where he did. I could see them years later sitting around a fire and Peter saying, and the guy saying to him, hey, remember when you began to sink? And him saying to them, you remember when you didn't get out of the boat? And so they were always, he'll always have that. I walked on water, you didn't. Fear and sinking faith are linked. Fear is the barometer of faith. You can't fake it. When anxiety begins to set in, it's a sign that faith is slipping away. So you need to understand why am I afraid? You got to ask yourself, what scripture applies to this? Lord, you're showing me that I'm afraid when I, I know I shouldn't be. Uh, how do we move forward? You know, I acknowledge it. I, I confess my lack of faith. Verse 31, he cries out to Jesus to save him. Immediately, there it is again, Frank, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. And he didn't, he didn't stop to teach a lesson. He didn't stop and say, are you sure? You know, is the water cold? He saw his fear. He knew what Peter needed right then and there, and he did it. And he, he immediately saves him. Then he says to him, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? I will say this. Peter showed more faith than I have ever showed in that one instance than I have ever showed in my life. And Jesus said to him, you have little faith. Jesus knows when what we face is more damaging than it is helpful. I am so thankful for this. Uh, Kevin and I have talked about this a few times. The Lord will show you you to the point where it won't overwhelm you. It won't become destructive. Because if he was to show us everything, or me, I'll just use myself, everything that is wrong with me, everything I lack all at once, it would crush me. He does it just, it's just like disciplining a child. You do it to the point where it is beneficial, not to the point where it becomes an exercise in anger. Um, and God has always done that. What does he say? I am well aware that you are but dust. I know what you can take and what you can't. I know what you need to learn and what will actually help you learn that and what won't. But he intercedes, and while he's saving Peter, Jesus asked the singular question, why don't you have the faith you should have? It's not rhetorical. Jesus wants an answer. He wants Peter to think about it. This question from Jesus indicates that we bear at least some of the responsibility for our own faith. There's an expectation from us. 
there are things that we are expected to return to God. We cannot change ourselves, but when he changes us, he expects a response. This question from would be some of the God has expectations from what he invests in us. We should have faith that is commensurate with what God has already shown and proven to us, where he has taken us. We are responsible to apply and live what he teaches us. At some point, Peter's focus moves from Jesus to the storm. This is preparing Peter for what he will face, the storms that will come his way, and when he will not be able to see Jesus, because they are coming. This is Remember, this is all part of Jesus getting them ready for when they can't see him anymore. Getting them ready to be us. I can't see Jesus. I can't see him coming across the water to save me and you know cry out to him. He's preparing them to face this world the same way we do. Now, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have scripture. They did not. They're going to write it. <laughs> but you understand their situation and what's actually going on. This wasn't Jesus sending them out and going, aha, you failed. You know, this that's not what this is. It's an act of kindness. Uh, it really is. When they, Peter and Jesus, got into the boat, the wind stopped. When it was over, it was over. When the reason for the storm was complete, to test the faith of all 12 of them, not just Peter, it's why he sent them across the water without being visible to them, why he stayed up on the mountain. Jesus wasn't tormenting them. He was causing them to grow. And this is why Scripture tells us to count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith, which is just what happened to all 12 of them, produces endurance. Endurance is the ability to go further than you did before. Faith is progressive. One step further. Uh, the wind didn't die down or decrease. It just stopped. Like, like you threw a light switch. The raging waters instantly become like a sheet of glass. Wow. And then it says in verse 33, And those who were on the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. It was the whole picture. It was not just him walking out. It was Peter stepping out. It was Peter then getting the boat and then the wind just stopping. The whole visceral event. The test becomes a benefit. Their faith, see from all of this comes a proclamation that has to be made. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. Like we always believed that, but now I believe it more. You know, there are times that I, when I see God in a certain way, and I believe it deeper than I ever did. I see it clearer than I ever saw it. Even sometimes just when I read a scripture. And it's sort of like this, wow. I mean, I, like I always thought I knew who he was. And I always thought I understood him. But now I understand him a little better. And it's like, wow. It's this moment right here. You really are God. You know, and I'm starting to get a little bit of an understanding of what the word God means, what comes with the title. 
the test becomes offended, their, te- their faith was tested, and they went further. You are certainly the Son of God. The challenge progressed them. Uh, we always want to avoid challenges. We want to avoid the raging waters. We don't want to step out of the boat. Most people would tell you, stay in the boat. It's the safest place to be. Do not get out of the boat. But this whole thing was for spiritual growth. It's interesting that some scholars make a case that the wording there indicates all those in the boat, that there may have been people in the boat other than the disciples. And I think that's extremely possible. Passengers that were heading the same way, crew, because it's not likely that the 12 disciples walked all over Israel carrying a boat that was big enough to take 12 people across the water. Usually the boats would be somewhere where you could rent them or hire out a crew. Or it's like uh, the boat Uber. You, you say, you know, here, how much to take us across the water? And, you know, some, I guess you would row yourself, others they would row. But anyway, it's kind of interesting to think about that. Could you imagine never seeing Jesus, never seeing these guys, you're just doing your Uber job across the water and you see all this stuff. I think it would make them cry out, wow, that's the son of God right there. You know, it, I'm sure when they went home, they had a nice talk with their wives and family. You're not going to believe what happened. And they're going to say, you're right, we don't. Verse 34, when they, where are we at? Just so I don't overwhelm. Okay. Verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Gennesaret. I actually looked it up and seen how to say it, so... Uh, they reached the western shore a little southwest of Capernaum, a small but very fertile strip of productive land. Where they landed was called the Eden of Galilee. Hence, the area was fairly populated and it was relatively well off. When the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding districts and brought to him all who were sick. In the midst of growing opposition from the Jewish leaders, Jesus continues to minister to the people of Galilee. Jesus is multitasking on a fantastic level. He is dealing with the Pharisees. He is growing his disciples to get ready. He's ministering to the crowds. He's preaching the gospel. You get to see it in The Chosen a little bit where you see that he's still a human being who gets tired and has to go sit somewhere for a little bit, you know, and just take it easy for a little bit. Uh, In the midst of all this opposition from the leaders, he is still doing what he does. By then, everyone knew who he was and what he had done and what he could do. So when they send word out, and like if we're here where I'm sitting and we go to uh, Monahan, we go to Whitaker and we go over across the, well, we almost never cross the bridge. If we go across to Squirrel Hill and we say, hey, Jesus is here, everybody knows who Jesus is. And they're like, ooh, and off they go. You don't have to explain anything to anybody. You just got to say Jesus is right here, right now. In Squirrel Hill? And Squirrel, well, no, in (laughs) Squirrel Hills. Jesus, I don't think he crosses bridges. Anyway, he walks on water, but bridges, for some reason, are a problem. I don't... (sighs) Sorry. Uh, Verse 36, and they implored him that he may just... This This is really interesting. They implored and basically begged him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were cured. So how many times in Scripture you see Jesus... 
going out of his way to heal someone, specifically healing someone. The the other the thing that would the woman who had the problem with the continual bleeding, she comes to mind here. She was yeah. the one that I remember who she was just her faith was just so strong and she was healed. That was very early on. This time it's like everybody's her. They're not even waiting for Jesus to say, what's wrong? Do you want to be healed? All these questions that he always asks, you know. No, they're just touching his coat. In other words, things are really growing. The crescendo is building. And uh, everyone who touched it, uh, for, you know, it's kind of neat. It's just, they begged him, let us touch your just the hem of your garment. And he said, okay, and they were all healed. Apparently all Jesus had to do was allow people to approach him and touch the edge of his outer garment and everyone who did was healed. Those who came to him were healed. You see what they did, they did in faith. They traveled all that way and they believed. If I just touch his garment, do you realize what a level of faith is? It goes back to the centurion. He says, you know, you don't have to come. Just order it to be so. This is that level of faith. This is why they're getting healed. Remember up in Capernaum, not many people were healed because they wouldn't believe. Here, everybody's getting healed and all they're doing is touching his garment. It's the difference in the crowds. It's the difference in faith and what they believe. They believe if I touch his garment, I'm going to be healed. And they were. They reached out due to what they had seen and heard in faith. And Jesus honored that. As always, faith is the commodity in the kingdom of God. And that is the end of chapter four. We are ripping through this book. We, are. we have to throw water on it so don't burst in the flames. Verse, uh, chapter 15. See where we're at. Oh, we got six minutes yet. That's an eternity. We might finish Matthew in six minutes. It's becoming clear that the sides are forming for or against Jesus, with the Pharisees being Jesus' primary antagonist. Opposition and loyalty are becoming clear and public. In verses 1 through 20, Jesus confronts the religious leaders, the blind leading the blind accusation. So that's how this starts. All that that just happened, and then it says this. Remember, people just touched his garment and were healed. Don't separate that from this because there's a number in between them. It says, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. That should mean something to you when I say they came from Jerusalem. And said, Okay, it's noteworthy that they came from Jerusalem. Remember, we're still up north in Galilee. The distance from Jerusalem to Capernaum, which is in the general area where Jesus is, is around 100 miles, 106. That's a good way to walk, or ride a donkey, or ride in a cart over rocks. They were from Jerusalem. It is assumed that they came with some authority from the religious leaders in Jerusalem. The chief priest, the heads of the Sanhedrin sent them. These guys didn't leave Jerusalem on their own and come up there just, let's go see what's happening. They were sent with a mission and that they were either sent or were permitted to come to question Jesus because we can tell by the fact that they're there that things are getting serious. 
Jerusalem is noticing what's going on and what they're hearing is disturbing them. Um, it's getting very serious. Sort of like, think of it as a group of U.S. senators coming to Munhall to talk to a town councilman. I mean, this is big stuff. When these guys are traveling, everybody knows who these guys are. I mean, these are the top of the line, the top of the pecking order. There's nobody above them in Jewish society. Well, the Romans, that's a whole different group of guys. But in Jewish society, there is nobody above them. They had traveled all that way to confront Jesus and put him in his place in front of the people. It never says that they called him aside. Let's work this out. You know, tell us what's going on here. That what the scriptures say. If you find yourself offended, you know, go to the person. Talk that none of that. They they're right up. And man, they made their own poison that they had to drink. Every time they try to hurt Jesus, they hurt themselves. And all Jesus has to do is tell them the truth. Uh, they had traveled all that way to confront Jesus and put him in his place in front of the people. They were sent to handle the Jesus issue which means he had become a nationwide influence on the people and they saw it as a nationwide problem. Now, just a little background. Most of the scribes were Pharisees. When you hear scribes and Pharisees, which is how it... I think this might be the only place where it says the scribes first. Not that it matters. Oh, the Pharisees first. Because most of the times it says scribes and Pharisees. Here it says Pharisees and scribes. I just pointed out because it's interesting, well, to me. And scribes uh, were the guys who were Pharisees mostly who kept record of the law, all the law, that voluminous law that they had created. Their job was to know what it said, where it said it. So they had just papers everywhere. And if a question come up, you went to a scribe. If, it, if we were two Pharisees who weren't sure exactly what the law we had conjured up says, we would go find a Pharisee who was a scribe, and he'd say, hey, we need you to... And he would dig through his stuff and say, here it is. This is what it says. So when you hear that, realize they, who they brought was the experts in the law. It was the group of Pharisees, and they brought with them Pharisees who were experts in the law. Not the law of Moses, which they also were, by the way, but the law of the rabbinical law. Uh, they were the ones responsible for keeping the records, copying the text, making sure everybody knew it. They were like the librarians of the law. Scribe is what they did. Pharisees is who they were, is the best way to understand that. They were the lawyers and teachers of the Jewish law as they knew it as well as anyone, especially the traditions and the rabbinical law, because it was so vast by then that you needed someone who'd spent their life just remembering it or knowing it, because nobody really could know it. When Jesus was born and the wise men showed up, if you will take your mind there, Herod the Great called on the scribes to search the scripture to see where the Messiah would be born. When he said, when he called the men and, said, and they said, oh, it, Scripture says in Bethlehem, it was the scribes who did that, who went through the Scripture and found out where he would be born. The Pharisees were one of three sects in which the Jews were divided socially, politically, and re religiously. 
as we have Democrats and Republicans and socialists now, the other two being the Aseans and the Sadducees. Uh, the Sadducees get some print. The Aseans do not, but they were there. Uh, extremely dedicated to the law and detailed adherence to it was the Pharisees. Uh, the law of Moses and tradition. See, if it was just the law of Moses, there wouldn't be any issue. Uh, and if you will remember from Scripture, Paul was a Pharisee. He claimed, he said outright, I'm a Pharisee. Jesus is focused on the heart of the law instead of the letter of the law, the why instead of the what, which is what God is always about, brought Jesus into conflict with them. Jesus was explaining scriptures and teaching scripture in a way contrary in a way contrary to the way they were explaining them. In other words, he was saying they were wrong. Jesus either stated or implied they were wrong in public a lot. So they sent the heavy hitters up to deal with them. A little bit of background. The Essenes were members of a Jewish sect that existed in Palestine during the time of Christ. They were not mentioned in the New Testament, though they had been referred to when they were talked about it was them they were talking about, most scholars believe. They were uh, aesthetics who practiced community of goods, generally shunned marriage, refrained from attending worship in the temple, and attached great importance to the study of Scripture. Many scholars associate the Dead Sea Scrolls with them. You know, Masada up on that mountain, when the, that's them. They, they were a pretty powerful powerful group. Uh, Jesus doesn't mention them, but they were all through society. Um, I'm sure they were in the crowd that yelled crucify him. I'm sure they were in the, you know, I'm sure they were looking for something different and Jesus didn't bring it. How do you spell Essenes? E-S-S-E-N-E-S. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard for us to, maybe as we look at our country right now in conflict and between the far right, the far left, and all the poor people in the middle, and how the far right and the far left have sort of taken over the discourse in the country. Uh, it's the same thing there. Uh, maybe now we can understand that we could a few... I mean, it's it's this conglomeration of things that are going on. And Jesus, everybody's trying to figure out who's right, and Jesus is just standing up there in front of everybody, healing people, and then saying, these people are wrong. And... Uh, not being shy about it, and when every time they come to confront him, he shuts them down. He proves them wrong every time, and they don't know, so they kill him. We'll leave off right there on verse 2. Well, I'll just read it to you, and then you can go from there. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Listen to the question. It's not the law of Moses. Why aren't you following the rabbinical law? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Of all the things that are going on, people are being healed, wonderful miracles will happen. Why aren't you washing your hands? They came all the way from Jerusalem to ask them why they're not washing their hands. Well, he answers them and they're not happy. We'll leave it at that. Any questions, comments, criticisms, complaints? Anything? Alrighty. Verse 2, let me write that down. 15.2. Because if I, I'm organized, if nothing else. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and we really thank you for your word. 
And we thank you for your spirit being here to guide us through it. And I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are just ready to hear it. And Lord, we want your word to change us. And we want to be more for the kingdom than we are for this world. We want your light to shine through us. And Lord, we just ask that you help us to do that. And Father, I just ask that you be with my brothers and sisters. Watch over them, protect them, and bless them. Make them strong, wise, brave, and compassionate. And help them to glorify your name in what they think, what they do, and what they say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.